Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. I just want to read a story to you. Matthew 28 says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them on the way and said, Greetings. They came up and took a hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guards who were guarding the tomb went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with, assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, and they said, this is what we want you to tell people. Tell them his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this gets to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you all out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story, has been spread among the Jews to this day. I love a good story. I believe this is the greatest story ever told, and I believe it's true. I believe it really happened. And every Easter, I wonder what it would take for you to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Easter's claim, what I just read to you, its implications deserve to be considered seriously. In fact, so great are its claims that it's irresponsible not to. So I want to focus on just two words for our purposes today in this story. One's at the beginning, it's the word tomb, and then one at the very end, story. In the Lord of the Rings, the two hobbits are journeying. And they're a little ways in. Sam says to Frodo, after all that's happened, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. It's very insightful. Because he assumes there's some bigger, grander story going on. And I think he's right. And I'd like to challenge 
you'd ask the same question. What tale have you fallen into? There's two stories that emerge from the tomb. The women run to tell the disciples, and the guards run to tell the religious leaders. Both have a message, both have a story, and it's the same Greek word used for both. One's a message of hope, one's a message of deception and denial. Two completely different stories. And here's the truth. You're in one of them. You're in one of those stories. The story of the guards circulates for a few years after the resurrection, but it doesn't hold up to the evidence. A simple reading of the text proves that. Rationally, it's just filled with holes. And I've spent countless Easter's trying to convince people of that. It's not my task today. But the story that the women tell outlives that story miraculously. It aligns better with the facts. Otherwise, it would have never reached us. It would have never made it out of the first century. Do you know, if you consider, probably no culture better than that one was better at crushing or maybe crucifying a would-be religion. To make it out of the first century with this kind of story, something phenomenal and real had to have happened. And I'll argue today, it's the story that you want to be true. It's important to have thought through which story you're in, because it turns out that it represents your whole approach to life, your philosophy of all reality. I want you to notice that both stories start at a tomb. This is kind of ironic, because this is where life ends. No matter which story you're in, that's the end for all of us. But they differ. One claims it's not the end. All philosophy starts at the tomb. You have to start at the end to make sense of life. I have a favorite author who I recently found out in a lecture that whenever he reads fiction, he reads the end first because he gets too stressed out in the middle. How many of you do that? Because in the first service, people, people do that because they get too stressed out <laughs> because how it ends is everything. That's the same with your life. How it ends is everything. Uh, another favorite author of mine, Calvin Miller, wrote this, and I contemplated it, and I want to just tease something out for you. He says, is it not odd that the world's most glaring light should issue from a tomb? And I thought to myself, well, yes and no. Yes, it's odd that a light should come 
from a tomb because you and I aren't looking at tombs. We avoid death. We stay away. We, stay, we don't just casually stroll through cemeteries. We're highly disinterested in dying. And so we're just not usually there to see anything great. We avoid the topic. But no, it's not that odd. Because we should be looking there a little more often. As one writer said, death is the worm at the core. It's what haunts us, all of us. We're secretly trying to put out of our minds every day. It's the darkest of all realities. But what a place to find hope. Where do we need it the most? So the story of the guards is they have this life-altering experience. Imagine that in a moment they are at a tomb and they do see a light. And the fears they've lived with all their lives could possibly dissipate. They could be gone. Hope could finally come into their world, their lives, their families. How do you miss it? I want you to notice the irony. The text says, the story I read, that when they saw the angels, they became like dead men. Very ironic. They were sent to guard a corpse, but became like corpses. And the corpse they were guarding came alive. It's an ironic twist. It's a great reversal of reality. This is a near-life experience for these guys. But they prefer to deny it to themselves and to others. Really? I watched a lecture at the recommendation of a friend by David Brooks. Uh, and he quoted an author that I've, I have read before, one other book that he's read, Neil Postman who had just, I guess, not long ago written a book called The End of Education. The lecture was to an Ivy League uh, college, if I remember correctly, university. And Neil Postman says, universities have stopped asking the big questions. Do you really leave that tomb and not ask the big questions? Wait a minute, is there, is there a possibility that this is not the end? Yeah, our culture has stopped asking, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Because secularism says these questions are irrelevant. Because there's no meaning anyway. The story is, there is no story. I think it's dishonest. And I think it has to do with the guards doing, just deny something that's real. A part of us that really does want to know, needs to know. So what I'd like you to do in the few minutes that we have left is consider how your story and your love of stories betrays secularism's claim 
and why Christianity and the resurrection, the one told by the women, aligns better with reality and offers you the greatest hope. So let's do that. Robert McKee is a Hollywood screenwriter. He was a professor at USC in his 80s now. To teach his students, he created something called the Story Seminar, to teach them about the wonders of story, how to tell them. And he wrote this, stories nourish us. They provide a kind of food that the soul craves. Stories, he says, are equipment for living. We go to the movies because we hope to find in someone else's story something that will help us understand our own. We go to live in a fictional reality that illuminates our daily reality. And I think he's right. We're a culture that loves movies, loves stories. We love them. We spend countless hours and billions of dollars to make and consume them. We binge on stories. How many times have you stayed up at night and go, it's way too late, but one more season. We'll watch one more season, then we're going to bed. See, we love stories where we can step out of time, where we can love without parting, where death isn't the end, where good triumphs over evil, where what I do really counts forever. I just read recently that uh, B.J. Thomas has stage four lung cancer. He's 78 years old. Read that this past week. Really hit me because I've loved his voice since I was in high school when I got to understand who he was. You know, raindrops keep falling on my head. All right. Uh, he had a Christian album that through high school I wore out. To this day, I can sing the songs on he was telling everyone, hey, you know, saying to his fans, you know, I just want you all to know I appreciate you all. Thank you for everything. I've, I'm, I, I'm glad to have been here. He knows he's going to end, knows it's going to end. And he says, uh, I really hope my, my songs will live on. Because none of us want to do something and it not matter forever. Even after I'm gone. That's a craving of the human soul. The human heart wants these things. We cannot not want them, and the stories that we love reveal it. Have you seen the news of the world yet with Tom Hanks? This is a, this is a movie about stories. This guy brings the news of the world to the little towns. Many of the people can't read. Many of them don't get the paper. Comes in, sets up a little light, and the crowd gathers like you're gathered right now and just listen to him stories and they laugh and they cry and they moan and they protest. And they're incited in a one particular scene. I won't give it away, but literally in the moment, justice happens because of a story that he tells. Because stories envision, they, en they enable and ennoble us in remarkable ways. 
John Eldridge, in a little book called Epic, he asks this, how can we get a better felt sense of God and his great story? Well, sometimes, counterintuitively, he says, we have to start with the movies we love. The films you love are telling you something very important, something essential about your heart. Let me tell you about how I go to movies. I'll bet there's some movies you see when, like, you know, when you're watching previews and you go, oh, I can't wait for that one. And then there'll be one that comes on and you go, oh, I'll, I'll go to Gil. I ain't seeing that. For whatever the reason is, you all have your, I'm not going to see that. Well, I have a couple of uh, high-level preferences for movies that I see. One of them in the romance category, love romantic comedies, love romance movies. But I need to have the couple end up together or I'm out. <laughs> if they don't end up together, I'm out. I, am not, I have not recovered from the Titanic. That was the worst. I can't rewatch that one. Can't do it. You know, he made that end up. That could have been better. That didn't really happen. When I was a kid, Star is Born. I'm in middle school. This is when this really hit home to me because I fell in love with Barbara Streisand. I mean, I'm in middle school. My aunt gets me on this movie. Chris Christopherson dies at the end of that thing. It's the reason why I can't watch the new one because I know what happens at the end. No, I, I, you got to stay together. All right, the other thing that I prefer when I watch movies is I prefer my hero to live at the end. Don't kill the good guy off. Don't do that. I can't, the only exception is Gladiator. And the only reason why is because he's going to be with his loved ones. Uh, I'm going, okay, if you're going there, it's okay. If you're going anywhere else, I'm not watching this movie again. And the, and the final thing that I really love about movies uh, that I got to have is uh, I actually need the hero of the movie. I don't care if it's just a regular guy or if it's a superhero. I need him to dominate. I don't need him to just barely win. These movies, that's why I don't watch, you'd be surprised maybe by this. I don't watch Marvel movies. They're not marvelous enough. <laughs> Some guy that has an accident in a science lab, drinks something stupid, is stronger than every superhero on the, on the planet. I can't handle it. Superman barely, everybody, all these superheroes barely win. You can have it. Can't have it. Dominate, or hey, we'll try. You know, you know the feeling of coming out of a movie, especially in the afternoon, if you go to a matinee, it hits me harder than if I come out of a movie in the evening. That depressing feeling. The sun hitting you. You're like, reality. <laughs> oh, I was gone for a little while. You're like, what is that? What is that? Well, the stories make you feel like, really, that life should have meaning. Because you just got riled up by some wonderful thought. Or possibility. You come outside the theater and the whole world tells you, none of it matters. You don't matter. You, the end doesn't matter. Thank you, science. You're so brilliant. And you're just fragmented. 
Annie Dillard in a little essay or a little book at Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, she said this, either this world, my mother is a monster regarding the same topic, or I myself am a freak. And I tried to figure out what, 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 is, she, what is she saying? Well, she's saying this, either nature has played one of the cruelest possible pranks it could play on the human human soul to tell you you came from nothing, you're going to nothing, you are nothing. But I want you to think there's something. That would make nature, she says, a monster. On the other hand, she says, if somehow nature had nothing to do with those amazing feelings and cravings that you have, you're longing for more, you're longing for something beyond, and you have it for no explainable reason, well, then that makes you a freak. Tim Keller calls this fragmentation we feel. We're told we're nothing, but there's something in here that says that can't be true. He calls this like a, a false positive. Uh, where your longings don't match reality. You get a medical test that reads positive, even if you don't have the condition. Which really just turns out to be a flaw in the test. It's as if the world is saying to you, sorry for the mix-up. Sorry that you have these incredible longings. They mean nothing. C.S. Lewis wrestled with that. He could not deal with that. It was very difficult for him. So he wrote this. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger? Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel, or women, feel sexual desire? Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures are satisfied by it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, it's a great line, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest that there's a real thing. You want those things because you were meant to have them. Otherwise, C.S. Lewis goes on to say one of my favorite quotes of his. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if, the, if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never have known it was dark. When I am at my lowest, 
and my faith is all literally but gone. Those two quotes come to my mind for now two decades. How do you explain that? Religion tries. Christianity is by far a better, a better understanding. Buddhism will say about your desires uh, that Buddhism and Christianity overlap a little bit because both of them will tell you that you have desires but you can't get them satisfied here on this earth. Christianity and Buddhism will tell you that. Buddhism's approach to your desires is to say, well, you're not really a person. That's an illusion. You're one with the universe. So when you say I need something or I want something, uh, Buddhism would say, you don't really want that or need that. You are that. It is you. And so... One of these days, you'll reach a level, a height, some sort of spiritual conversion where you realize you're not a person. You're part of a big one thing, and your heart will detach from those desires, and then you'll become part of the all soul. So you lose your personhood. Buddhism is very similar to secularism in that respect. You're not really a person. Those desires aren't real. That's an illusion. Christianity says, no. You are a person, and you'll never stop being a person, and your longings are real. They're not illusions. You were created with them. Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. God put them there. What story do you believe? Nature's a monster? You're a freak? You're not a person? Or someone put those things in your heart? It's like a secret he's written in every one of our hearts, like for humans. We just have this story written there. See, that's why I'm asking you, what tale are you in? You were created for eternity. Sin ruined that. And we want what we want in every story. Someone to rescue us. Someone to say it's not so. All your favorite stories borrow from the Easter story. All your favorite stories point to a true story. The gospel. And the gospel says those longings are real. And because Christ has been raised, the ceiling, the lid has been lifted for them to be fulfilled. Now, it is this very topic we're talking about, which might be a strange topic to you on an Easter. But C.S. Lewis was an atheist, but he loved stories. His best friend was J.R.R. Tolkien. They taught together at Oxford. They were great friends. Much, much written about their relationship and their conversations. And they, they had 
Tolkien was a Christian. Lewis is an atheist. And they'd have these late night walks and uh, a beer and a cigar, and they would just talk stories. And Tolkien was trying to help C.S. Lewis realize what these, what these stories really mean. If you haven't, I don't know if you're going to want to read it, but Tolkien has written an essay called On Fairy Stories, where he talks about the rationale for science fiction myth. He really gets down kind of deep into our passion for science fiction and that kind of stuff, why he just loves that genre and why it's so important to humans. And he says, those stories, this is what he says in the essay, should do something for you. They should say something to you. And, they, and with C.S. Lewis's love for those stories, Tolkien was trying to say, you sh they should do something more to you. C.S. Lewis thought, they're just tales to me. I love them, but they're lies. And Tolkien said, no. He said, not if Christianity is true. If Christianity is true, and by the way, no other religion can say this. If Christianity is true, listen to this. When you read those stories, you feel they're pointing to some reality. But when you get to the gospel, the story of the death and resurrection, that God made us, sin ruined us. He saw us in our sin and wrote himself into our stories, pulling us into the grander story, the one that he had already written in our hearts, died on a cross, and when all hope was gone, breaks the power of death, rises from the dead, Tolkien said, that is not one more story pointing to underlying truth. This is the underlying truth to which all the other stories point. Tolkien said, art has been verified. The stories you love can happen because of the resurrection. If your philosophy of life doesn't start with that, who's got a better story than that? What are you telling yourself running away from the tomb? It's fascinating to think about that. I stand at lots of tombs. It's part of the job. We're not thinking about death enough. To realize our need. Tolkien says, legend and history have met and fused. The gospel, the resurrection, lifts the lid on reality and explaining and verifying your deepest longings. So another writer writes this. The final test of any faith that you have that you're contemplating, philosophy, belief, ought to be this, and I like the way he wrote it. Does the one explain the other? Does the story you have running from the tomb explain the story of your life? Does the story bring into perspective the pages you were already holding, you know, the days of your life? Does it take everything into account? Does it explain the longing in your heart for a life you haven't found yet? 
most of all, does it give you back your heart? Does it give, it back your, does it give you back your personhood? Or do you run away from the tomb denying everything in your soul that wants that grave to be open and no body in it? Let me ask you again. What tail are you in? The gospel is the story that all other stories only point to. And because it's true, makes every single one of those possible. You might struggle intellectually with Christianity. You might struggle with the story of the Bible. But intuitively, in your heart, let me tell you, it reads like every story you love. Great beginning, evil comes in, somebody's got to redeem it. And that story evokes every story you love. A message of redemption. And if Christ is risen, then all the longings of our heart are not illusions. They're real, and they will come true. Because of the resurrection, good can overcome evil, the cross and the resurrection. Love doesn't end. If you know him, you will live forever in a relationship with him. You will not lose your personhood. You get a new body. You remain you in many ways. That's how God's designed it. Revelation 21, I will make all things new. What I do counts forever. Death doesn't separate me from my loved ones. All right, I got to end with uh, C.S. Lewis. Just got to tell you this. The end of the Chronicles of Narnia. By the way, C.S. Lewis gives his life to Christ after that conversation. And you can read about it. tells the story. With Tolkien, by the way. So he writes the Chronicles of Narnia. And at the very end, of course, if you've heard of Shadowlands, that's, that's sort of the whole, it's all of Narnia. It's a dead place. It's a dead world. There's this big cosmic battle at the end of the entire story, long, big story. And uh, Aslan, who is the lion who represents God, has won the battle. but 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 the people, the kids, they don't know what's going to happen now. They're like, what now? And Aslan, who's God knows what they're thinking. And he says, uh, Shadowlands, the world of the dead, I want you kids to know it's over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. The dream you've been living in, all the longings, all the things you want, That's over. It's a real day now. It's a real morning. The sun is out. The longings are fulfilled. 
And then this is the final words. And as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked at them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful, I can't write them. And for us, this is the end, all of the stories. And we can most truly say that they lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what the resurrection provides. Is that the tale you're in? you bow your heads. Last week I buried, I said I buried, I said goodbye, our church said goodbye to a beloved man in his 80s. He was ready for heaven, very confident, man of faith. His wife Carol had called me a few days before and said, Bob has a story to tell you. Well, I didn't get to hear it. He passed away. He was good at telling stories I would have loved to have heard. But I thought to myself, no worries. Bob's death is not the end of the story. That hope can be yours. I'm going to hear that story one day. Christ died on a cross, rose from the dead to rescue us. It's the only story that makes sense of all the stories because it's the true one. And if you don't know that, if you want to know it, pray this with me, just in your heart. Lord, I believe that without you in my life, I have no hope of finding fulfillment for my deepest longings. They'll never be satisfied here. I believe that by dying on the cross for my sin, and especially rising from the dead, you have made a way for me to have life forever. And in one miraculous act, secured eternity for us together. I want that. Take over my life. That's what you pray. You'll be brought into a story. I was 14 years old when I was brought into that story. That's the tale I'm in. Father, I lift up everyone in this room and I just ask, that you'll draw a heart to yourself and they'll make the connection between what you've done and what you say about us and the way that you love us and what you've prepared for us resonates with us at the deepest levels of who we are. We cannot say no to that.
In Jesus' name, amen.